0: Well, uh, I'm not going to answer all of those today, but I'm going to answer one of them, okay? And then next week, you got to come back for answers along the lines of the other ones, okay? So you see how we do that? you got to come back next week. Good morning. We are in a series that we began on Easter on 1 Corinthians 15, where the greatest lit- piece of literature in the history of the world on life after life, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul reasons toward uh, a, a life... A hope that is sure, and it's based in the resurrection. Real quick, one of the things our marketing team did because we want you to practice resurrection. We, as we're going to learn today, we want you to practice your eternal life has started now. Doesn't start when you die. And so, out at the welcome counter, at the information counter, they have these reason the logo of the series on stickers that you can put on your refrigerator, on your laptop, on your pad, whatever whatever it is that you use. I was a mess last week and I promise I can't promise I won't be today. Um, today is our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter Frankie Francis is, today's her third birthday, so if you see a little cutie running around here, you know, that's little Francis, but the significance of her name is that uh, 11 years ago today, my mom died, Francis, and so uh, April 16th is an amazing day for us on so many levels, and I actually had someone after the last service tell me the exact same story in their family, and sometimes I don't know. I don't want to look into things too much. Sometimes I think God shows off, you know. He just says, I'm going to show you that there's more, you know. I'm going to show you that there's more. But I, if you're like me, Easter and then this subject matter, uh, I think because all of us are affected by life after life, uh, at some point you will be, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just bursting with meaning and emotion, is it not? And last week I started by saying, let's, let's begin looking at this. And what Paul says is, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And he says, what I received, verse 3, I passed on to you is of first important that Christ died, not a martyr's death. It was an atoning death. It was a substitutionary death for your sins and mine. According to the scriptures, the Old Testament had predicted this for, for centuries, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, the Old Testament had predicted this for years. In the Old Testament, you'll see all these third day things that happen. On the third day, that's God's day. They think they had him. On the third day, that was God's day. And we see that. He says, and that he appeared to Peter, Cephas, and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born, I mentioned this last week, that's the word ektroma, for I am the least of the apostles. Don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but his grace to me was not without effect." it changed me. So what I want you to see in reviewing that is this chapter, while it creates emotion in us, it has zero ounces of emotion in it. It is all rationale. It is all reason. He's not talking subjectively about the resurrection. He's talking objectively. He's not talking about philosophy in this chapter. Paul does that. He was a world-class philosopher and scholar. He doesn't do that. This chapter is about not philosophy, but history. It's not feeling, but fact. And as you're going to see today, hopefully, before you leave here, why that is central to your faith. Why, though, does he do that? Why all the rationale? Why all the reason and deductive logic? Here's why. If you would have picked one of the most unlikely people in the history of the world who had everything to lose... By believing in Jesus, and uh, like one of the most unlikely people to say, this human being is divine and is worthy to be worshipped, you would pick Saul of Tarsus. You would have picked Saul of Tarsus. I mean, that ain't happening. <laughs> that is not happening. That this guy spends his whole life saying, this person is worthy of your worship. It went against everything in his Judeo centric tradition and hope and code embedded in him. He was the most unlikely of people. What brought this most unlikely of people to faith in that Christ? The resurrection. That's what did it. It wasn't feeling, according to him, as we'll learn, it was fact. As a matter of fact, the resurrection was this gigantic revolutionary argument that grabbed Paul's mind and conscience and imagination and soul. And that's why when he says, some of you are talking like there's no resurrection. Let me go back. Look at the witnesses. Look at the witnesses, look at the empty tomb, the events, the eyewitnesses, the effects. Look at the the empty tomb, look at the eyewitnesses, and look at the effect upon so many lives, including mine. You had orthodox Jews who had everything to lose going around saying, he is risen, Christos Anesto, he is risen. And they went to their graves and suffered for that claim. How 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 do you explain that? He says, uh, a German theologian by the name of Wolfhart Pannenberg put it this way. The early Christians could not have possibly preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses actually existed. In other words, if there's anyone here today who says, well, I know, there is, you know if there was an empty tomb, uh, so what after all these years? How can we trust an ancient document? I mean, this is old. This is is an ancient document. How can we trust that? And Pannenberg's saying, think about it. From a historical perspective, there is no way those things that did not happen. There's no way that they are not true. There must have been an empty tomb. There must have been eyewitnesses or Christianity would not have been able to preach the resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem immediately and radically successfully like it did. It had to have happened. There's no other explanation. One day it didn't exist. The next day it did. And these Orthodox Jews are the ones who are saying it happened. Uh, Great. If you you want to read a great contemporary writer of theology, uh, the Anglican writer, uh, Ninty writes, uh, brilliant. He says, if there's only one, if there's only an empty tomb and there were no sightings, people would have believed the body of Christ was stolen. If there were only eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had a body in it, people would have believed they were hallucinating. But only if all these were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the people who witnessed, could Christianity have ever even begun. Now, again, you could say, well, that is awesome for them. They lived then. What are we supposed to do? We live now. We don't have the luxury of having some Damascus Road experience where Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I'm real. You know, and I know people have seen him in their pancakes and stuff like that, but, but don't hang, don't don't, don't hold out on that one. And 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 listen, to this, listen to this. You know what, Paul, if Paul were here today, if we said, hey, we have a special guest, the Apostle Paul, which wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, we have had him last week. If we could do that, uh, if, we, if we if we he were here today, he would say, I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me that you're not going to have the Damascus Road experience like I had, where he confronts you and says, why, why are you persecuting me? What You don't have to have that face-to-face experience of objective experience. Why? It's because the evidence is there for you to consider. And uh, we see that in the book of Acts. We see him speaking to people like us, people who didn't witness it, but now are coming to faith because of the overwhelming evidence of the events, the eyewitnesses, and the effects. So, for example, Acts chapter 26. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It's the Acts of the Apostles. What happened when that stone moved? It rocked the world. It changed the world. And it launched this movement. Well, Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, the scholar, the theologian, the expert in the law, becomes Paul, the apostle, the preacher of the gospel. And he's imprisoned for it. This is really important to know that. It wasn't, hey, I came to Jesus and my batting average went up. That doesn't always work that way, does it? As You'll see in a minute why that's important. Paul, I came to Jesus and I got put in prison. And he's in prison. And at that point, Festus is the governor of of Caesarea, and King Agrippa is the king of Judea and Galilee. And Agrippa's visiting Festus, and Paul's in prison, and they want to hear from their political prisoners. So Agrippa and Festus say, hey, we want to hear from this Paul. We want to hear from Paul. We want to to hear his claim. And so they bring him before them, and Paul begins to talk about the birth of Jesus the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And then he says, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He got up from the dead. He conquered death. And at that point, Festus stops him. Look at this in Acts 26, verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's death. Then you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Dead people don't walk. Dead people don't get out of the grave. Paul was a philosopher, very scholarly person. Festus is very impressed with all his academic reasoning and scholarship. But when Paul starts talking about the resurrection, Festus is speaking from a philosophical standpoint. and He says, uh, you lost me there. Dead people don't walk. It doesn't happen. And Paul calmly responds. Look what he says in verse 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. It is reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him, King Agrippa. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. He says, Paul's saying, Festus, I'm not talking about philosophy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about history. I'm not talking about the subjective realm. I'm talking about the objective realm. I did not have a subjective experience with Jesus. I did not want to believe in Jesus. I had everything to lose by believing in Jesus. I didn't want that. But when I saw that he was raised from the dead, I had to believe in him. I had to. I couldn't deny it. And he turns to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know the public facts. These things that happened are a matter of public record. They were not done in a vacuum. You know these things. You know the tomb was empty. You know what the guards really said happened. You know about the eyewitness sightings. You don't want to deal with them, which he did. He didn't want to deal with this. He says it. He goes, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to deal with this right now. He says, I understand that. I didn't want to deal with him either. I don't want to believe in Jesus, but when I saw Him risen from the dead, I believe in him not because of philosophy, because of history. Not because of subjectivity, but because of objectivity. Not because of emotion, but because of reason. That's why. I couldn't help but speak about these things that I've seen and heard. And so this is really important because, guys, guys, you're in a culture that, that doesn't want this Jesus. Do you understand that? Why that text is so critical is because we live in a culture that doesn't want this Jesus. Here's the culture we live in Oh, believe in your Jesus. Believe in your whoopee Jesus. Believe. If He fulfills you, good for you. That's good for you. If that, you'll hear this. You'll have friends who will say this Oh, you believe in Jesus? That works for you? Good, that good. doesn't work for me. We don't want the Jesus that He's the only alive guy, the rest of them are dead guys. He's the way, the truth, and the life. His way is the way. God has opened up a way. It's for everyone, but we don't want that one. Because why? The same reason Pete, Paul didn't want him. We lose control. He's a threat. He's a threat. And, and gang, gang, Paul's saying, I didn't believe in Jesus because he fulfilled me. I didn't want to be fulfilled in him. There was nothing fulfilling about him at all. He was a threat to my tradition. He was a threat to my code. He was a threat to my my worldview, my righteousness, my control. I believed in him because I had to, the evidence of the resurrection. And I think, Paul, if we said, hey, here's the apostle Paul. He's with us today. He would stand up in front of us, self fulfillment-centric Americans, and he we say, don't don't talk to me about believing in Jesus because he fulfills you. Don't talk to me about that. Because there's, be there's gonna come a day if you follow him, he doesn't fulfill you. He's, there's gonna come a day when stuff happens. That's not gonna be fulfilling. Sometimes that stuff's gonna happen because you believe in him. And at that point, your faith is based on fulfillment? Do you know why this is what, this is the reason why college students lose their faith. It's because their faith is based on American self-centric fulfillment. And when he's no longer fulfilling, we lose it. Cuz that faith's gone. That that first diagnosis of cancer, where's where's Jesus then? Well, he's there, but that's not he's not doing his job. <laughs> he's not doing what he's supposed to do. He's my whoopee. He's supposed to protect me from all that and make sure that if I'm obedient to him, that his quid pro quo arrangement that, that he has with me is that he does his part. If Paul were here today, he would say, don't believe in him because he fulfills you. Because then you have created something you imagined and it's limited to your imagination and desires, which are very limited, by the way. Instead, you believe in him because of the facts. You don't believe in him because of subjective reality. You, you believe in him because of objective reality. You don't believe in him because of philosophy. You believe in him because of history. That's the basis. And I think of Paul here, he'd say you now have 2,000 years later the same basis for belief as King Agrippa. 2,000 years later, you have to account for the facts. You can't just say I believe in him because he fulfills me. You account for the facts that hundreds of Orthodox Jews who were the last people on the planet to believe, believed in the risen Son of God and at a high cost spent the rest of their lives testifying to that truth. At a high cost. It wasn't wish fulfillment. It wasn't hallucination. One day that that movement didn't exist. The next day it did exist at a high cost. Why? Because you cannot explain away with the events, the eyewitnesses, and the effects. You can't explain the resurrection away with intellectual integrity. You can say, you can say, well, that's not convenient for me right now. At least that's honest. I'm not willing to investigate the facts. Because you know what? I just don't want to change I kind of like my two car garage life the way it is, and I don't want Jesus to mess that up. And you might say, well, wait a second. I know all the explanation for what really happened, but it could not have been a resurrection. Or here you say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking about philosophy. I'm not talking about philosophy. You're talking about you have a philosophy that dead people don't get up from the dead. That's fine. You can believe that. Do you, you know 150 years ago, dead people didn't talk into these things to someone on the other side of the planet either? I mean, we, that's no way that's never gonna happen. So be careful there, but you're talking about philosophy. I'm talking about history. I'm talking about history. And he says, on that basis, I put my faith in him. And when he was in a prison cell, he still believed because the basis of his belief wasn't, you believe in Jesus, your batting average will go up. You'll get everything you want. That wasn't the basis of his belief. I love uh, Tim Keller's thoughts on this, and I owe so much to his writings on this, but Tim Keller said, I believe a rational approach to the resurrection meets one of our greatest existential needs. I believe that one of our greatest needs is a Savior that is not the product of our needs. In other words, what he's saying is, one of the main desires of your heart and mind is actually a Lord, an authority, who is not the product of our imaginations. We cannot make him in our own image to fit the small, trust me, your desires are actually smaller than the ones God has for you, to fit the desires of our small hearts. He says, that that's not what we need. Uh the dilemma about creating a God who meets your needs and you believe in because he's fulfilling to you is this, that God cannot fulfill you. He's limited by you. He's not outside of you. He's inside of you. He's the byproduct of your imagination. That God can only fulfill you if he is true and you believe him in spite of the fact that sometimes this isn't paying off. This isn't always paying off. When you're sitting in a jail cell in Rome because you're testifying to the resurrection. It's not paying off at that point. And that's when you have faith. That's when you have something that is going to withstand the nut job philosopher you have in college for your professor. And the resurrection of Christ gave to Paul and it gives to you and me, Southbrook. A Jesus we could not have imagined. A Jesus with hard edges. A Jesus that will perplex you sometimes. A Jesus you did not manufacture. A Jesus did, you did not believe because of some self-centric fulfillment wish, but because he is true. And paradoxically, that's the only kind of Jesus that's really going to fulfill you. And why? is because that Savior is beyond you. He's bigger than you. He's transcendent of you. Now, let's say that you create that God of your own mind. You, you, this has been a hit, time, began, do not create him in your own image. Do not limit him to your needs and your wants and your imagination. Here's the question with that. Let's say you do what most American religion is, create the God we want. Let's tailor, let's fit our own God. We got a little bit of this, got a little bit of this, got a little bit of this. And we do that. How can that God ever confront you and say, you're wrong when you hate yourself? Because his job is to make you feel good. So if you hate yourself and you want want to die, his job is to say, that's okay. That's okay if you want to die because you hate yourself. Because remember, you created a God who's out to embed in you what you want. And so if you, I've got to change my gender because I hate myself. I loathe myself. That God says, good, do it. That God can never confront you. Why? Because that's not his job. Or let's say you're on the opposite extreme. Let's say, man, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You know, you're God's gift to fill in the blank. That God, that's not his job to confront you on that and say, you think you, you think more highly of yourself than you ought. Because you know what? His job is to just say, oh, I know. you're You're God's gift to women. You're God's gift to men. You're God's gift to... Only a Jesus who is outside of that self-perception and is true, risen from the dead, and you don't really want to believe in him, but you do, not because you want to, but because you have to. Only that Jesus who is real is true. When you hate yourself because you have 10 more pounds than you had a month ago, he can say, I love you and I don't care if you had 10 more pounds. I don't care. I don't care you didn't get the contract. I don't care that the one you love most left you. I care, but I don't care in terms of how you see yourself. I I don't care that your child didn't get, make the team. I, I, I don't care that you don't live in the fulfillment of your parents' wishes for your success. That's not the basis for how I see you. I love you, and you're wrong to hate yourself. You're wrong to hate yourself. That's, is that not the Jesus you need? It is the Jesus we need, friends. And that's why we are way off as a culture. Because we're mostly living out of this self-centric fulfillment wish. And only a real God can say, you know what? You're wrong to loathe yourself. And I'm going to turn you around. I'm gonna, you're going you're to repent of that because of me. There's an old American, British American poet, famous poet, W.H. Alden. Alden was a, was a Christian when he was young, but then he left Christianity. became an atheist. So that's what he's known for. He was known for his atheism. And then later in life, he came back to Christ. And when he did, and he proclaimed publicly that he was a Christian, he was a follower of Jesus, one of his friends said, why would you do that? Why would you come back to Christianity? And in a brilliant answer, W.H. Alden said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. I believe in Jesus because he is in nearly every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. In other words, saying I've read the New Testament. I've read the gospels, and I realize Jesus is not a savior that anyone would have made up, because no one would have made up a savior like this. He contradicts what I want, he defies my expectations every place. He is in every sense the opposite of what I would have conjured up, and, and he's and he's real. That's what I need. I need something that's real. And somebody asked him, what about Buddha and Muhammad? What about about Buddha and Muhammad? And Alden said this, this is brilliant. This is at the heart of why we don't want to deal with this Jesus. He said, none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. In other words, he's a threat to me. None of those others are a threat to me because they're about my self-fulfillment. He's not about my self-fulfillment. He's about truth. He's about reality. And sometimes I crash against reality, and I need someone who, when I crash against reality, says, you just crashed against reality. It'll turn me around. And he says, this one's different. That's the kind of Jesus who can turn you around. That's the one I want. Now, you say, wait a minute. What does this have to do with life after life? What has everything to do with this? Right here, right here, right here. Do you know that the hope of eternal life doesn't start when you die? It starts when you receive Jesus. You are then in him. You have begun resurrection. Did you know that? So this is really important that Paul does this. And let me apply this. So this is uh, application. Um, now, now we're going to go to the text that is today's text. So that wasn't the sermon that you just heard the last 20 minutes. That wasn't it. Now the sermon's starting, okay? Here, are you ready for this? Now the sermon's starting, Okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, and starting at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Which was, by the way, we we take for granted in America. Yes, Ethel died, but she's in a better place. Life after life was not a construct of the ancient world. They, the, the some, there were, but not the Jewish world. Jews did not have a construct of life after life. Jesus brought that hope of eternity beyond Sheol. But if it is preached, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Does the world really need another religion? It's all about do this, do this, do this, do this, and you're in our club. Did the world really need that? What's the answer to that? No, the world doesn't need another religious group that if you do these 10 things, these 100 things, you're in our club, but if not, you're out of our club. That's, which is, by the way, that's totally what Christ was not about. He says, no, it's useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised, if there is no life after life. For if the dead are not raised... Then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now stop there. I'm about on the 16th hole right now. If Jesus has not been raised, I ain't in church. I'm telling you that right now. I'm out golfing because this is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It may, you know, put a little paint on the cracked drywall of your life. But other than that, it's not going to do much. There's no hope in that. That's transcendent. He says it's futile. And look at this, look at this you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this whole thing's a sham. It's not worth your time. It's not worth your attention. If indeed Christ has not been raised. Now, I want you to focus on something. Look at this application, why this is so critical to how you live your life right now. Right now, this today, I guarantee you, this affects all of you who are old enough to have sinned, which is over two, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are two-year-old sinners. Have you seen them lately? Uh, yeah, they, They're real. Um, n- now, remember, that, remember this. So, first of all, he says, so, so, look at this. And the least of the apostles, I don't deserve to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. Now, I don't know what's on your sin resume, but killed Christians is probably not on there. I'm just going to guess that I killed Christians in the name of God. And Paul said, that's on my resume. He says this in a number of places, 1 Timothy 1. He says it in a number of places. How did Paul get past his past? Because it's the same way you will too. The things that are in your past that you go, how do I get past that defining me? How do I get past that so affecting my self-image? How do I get past trying to prove myself and even religiousize myself out of that? How do I get past that? How did Paul get past it? The resurrection. That's how he got past it. He says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And oh, by the way, the implication is that, he says, I am too, and I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. I am in deep religious doo-doo if, if it is all about what's on your resume, resume is what you've done. But Paul says this, because of the resurrection, I realize now, it's not what Paul could do, it's what Christ has done. You see, you say, what is this, how does this apply to me? You and I, in this culture, we base our self-image on our performance. Are we meeting standards? Are we pleasing people? Our, usually comes from our family of origin, our self-perceived, this is a success. This is someone who should have self-esteem. And it usually has to do with looks and grades and achievements, houses, cars, those kind of things. And so we've been, our, our brain has to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because our basis for self-worth is, am I meeting those standards and pleasing people? That was not Paul's basis. It used to be. It used to be. His basis, look at this, friends. Well, his basis was this. His basis was, I am so wicked that Christ had to die for me. I couldn't do it on my own. And I am so loved that Christ was glad to die for me. And both are true. Both are true. I am both a weak sinner and an infinitely loved reality being at the same time. And I believe that because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, I am not in my sins Now, what does that mean, in my sins? What does that mean, in my sins? Well, let's say you commit a crime, and that crime says, this is your third strike, three years, no ifs, ands, or buts. Three years, you're doing three years. You've committed a sin against society. You have to pay that debt. So you go in, you're in there three years, and one day, they come in, they open up the door, and they say, you're free, because your three years is up. You have paid for your sin. You've paid for that. How do you know that you have paid for your sin. The door's open. You walk out. Here's what Paul's claim is He goes, You know how I know I'm free from my past? Because of my sin. Sin means death. The debt of sin is death. At the cross, he took my debt, he entered my death. And how do I know I am no longer in my sin? the door opened up and he walked out he walked out and i when he walked out i walked out cuz he took my sin i'm in him and i live my life in him resurrected forever and friends i don't know what the basis for how you see yourself is i challenge you to find a better reason to see yourself than that reason that you know, because of the resurrection, I am so wicked. I know now that the cross was—he had to die for my sins. But, but but I'm so loved that he was glad to die for my sins, and he stamped that the receipt of my sin debt paid is the empty tomb. Is the empty tomb? The door was opened, and I'm free. And you you know today you can be here and and you can say you know what I've committed some things and and. And uh, I need to make up for those things before God. Oh my gosh, you're ignoring the receipt. The receipt. The receipt is the empty tomb. Why are Why are you trying to pay? Why are you trying to pay? If I go to church enough, if I'm good enough, I can make up for the. Well, you're. You know, it's like being at a restaurant and somebody says, "Hey, we, we we paid your bill," and you're going, "Well, I think I'm gonna pay too." Why would you do that? Here's the receipt. How many of you keep receipts because you don't want somebody to come up to you and say, you still owe me, you still owe me. Why do you keep that? Because you can say, I'm free from that debt. And and the empty tomb, Paul says, is our receipt. And what Christian growth is, is that becomes more and more the basis for how you see yourself. Your mind that used to be self-fulfillment, success according to America, that's how i see myself my mind is slowly transitioning to i am in him i am no longer in my sins i'm in the resurrected one and when god sees you he does not see your record he sees his record like who makes this up who makes this up and nothing will take the place of that go ahead build the bigger 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 houses get the better car get get the better grip. do all that just do all that and when you and when you and when you're done, Jesus will be waiting for you because he's real. He'll be waiting. He'll wait for you. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take some time today because it really is, growth is every day you wake up, you know, I am in him. I am in him. I'm not my failures. I'm not my sins. That's My record is not the record. When he sees me, he sees the risen one. I am in him. And so I want you to, before you leave today, at least take a few moments to just sit in your seat and say, I am in him, the resurrected one. I am in him, the resurrected one. Say that with me. I am in him, the resurrected one. I'm not in my sins. I am in him. If he was not raised, I'm still in my sins. The converse to that, he is raised. I am not in my sins. I am in him, the resurrected one. And if you're ready, take the communion today. Because you know, communion, we always think communion is just about the cross. Communion is not about the cross, it's about this body, this this didn't stay dead. <laughs> this, this is the receipt. I'm holding the receipt of the living Christ for me, for us. So take some time to begin your journey of transforming your mind, and begin living your eternal life today. Today, you can start your eternal journey. Amen? Anybody want that? Does anybody want that? I mean, uh, this is a better way to live than the way many of us have been living. So let me pray, and then you just, hopefully you'll take at least a few minutes to do just that. Father, thank you as we venture into what it looks like to live forever. We have to stop and acknowledge what we are not still in our sins does. It begins that eternal stuff, materials made of that journey today. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you also. I pray. For that person here today, and she feels badly about herself, he feels badly about himself because of the things that culture says, if you do this, this makes you valuable. This makes you lovable. That today, everyone here hears, I am wicked enough that he had to die for me, but I am so loved that he was glad to die for me, and both are true. And you love us just the way we are, but you love us so much that you won't let us stay that way because you're outside of us and you're real. You're not here to fulfill us. You're here to bring us to you. And you love us when we're up and you love us when we're down. You love us when we're lost. You love us till we're found. And that's the God we need. And in Jesus' name, everybody who agree with that said, amen. amen. See you next week.